Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and we welcome you to Awesome Movie Year, Awesome Movie Year, Awesome Movie Year. We welcome you to Awesome Movie Year. Now let's start the show. It's good that we can start a season with Jason singing in what sounds like an impression of Gollum from The Lord of the Rings. Josh demanded. He said, if we do this, you have to go all in on your munchkin impression. I said, is that Mm -hmm. PC? And he said, it's out there. You can do an impression of it. Yeah. No, I feel like it's okay. But also, it, it mostly sounds like Gollum. So um, <laughs> we welcome you to my precious. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Real crossover there going back to our Lord of the Rings episode. So why is Jason singing like a munchkin? Well, we're premiering our new season on the films of 1939, which is often regarded. And I think, as we said, when we introduced this or announced it, as the greatest or awesomest movie year of all. I think still, even all these years later, it's held up as a kind of gold standard. So we're going to examine that and decide whether it's true, right? We're going to give the final... Can't be worse than 53. (laughs) I know Jason was not a fan of that. Uh, But I'm always a fan of looking further back in film history, so I'm excited that we're doing this. And, And really, this season because I think it's regarded as such an amazing year for movies is just full of classic after classic. And we are starting with really one of the most beloved, famous movies of all time, which is The Wizard of Oz. It's our box office champion episode. But one thing about going back this far is it's hard to find exact figures on how much money movies made at the box office or what were the top movies. One thing that is generally agreed upon is that the actual highest grossing film of 1939 is Gone with the Wind, but we will be getting to Gone with the Wind a bit later in the season when we talk about the Oscars Best Picture winner, which that's what it was. So as we've done, I think once or twice before, we looked a little lower on the chart, and that's where it gets kind of wonky, depending on what source you use and what source uh, that is using. So... um, According to The Numbers, which is a pretty good box office source, this is the highest grossing film of 1939 in terms of the money that it made in 1939. They say it grossed $12.3 million. Other sources say differently. Ultimate Movie Rankings has it at number three for the year. Uh, Wikipedia has it as the fifth highest grossing movie of the year with a gross of $2.048 million in 1939 itself. Um, Ultimately, again, according to Wikipedia, it grossed $29.7 million across various re-releases on its budget of $2.8 million, which was, at the time, the highest budgeted film for MGM. So that's a lot of numbers by way of saying we just are, not arbitrarily, but we decided this was a good movie to start with. It's famous. And we decided thus it would be the box office champion. It's the most watched film of all time. Uh, yes according to historians of people watching things the library (laughs) of congress i believe (laughs) is the real name of the historians of people watching things institution you know is that is that any better of a name josh that's to be debated so yeah yeah Uh, maybe they should change the name of that here's uh here's the quote from the library of congress josh 
The wonderful Wizard of Oz is America's greatest and best loved homegrown fairy tale, the first totally American fantasy for children. It is one of the most read children's books. Despite its many particularly American attributes, including a wizard from Omaha, The 1939 film adaptation has universal appeal because of its many television showings between 1956 and 1974. It has been seen by more viewers than any other movie. Yeah, I mean, the re-releases, whether that's on TV starting in the early days of TV or even in theaters at a time when the only way to see a movie again was to watch it again in the theater. There was a 1949 re-release that made even more money than the initial release. So we can say that this movie has been a big success, even if that success didn't all occur in the year that we're talking about. Right. It's, yeah, as you mentioned, lots of re-releases. I don't think I've ever seen it on the big screen, but watching it this time, it would be great to see it in a movie theater. Yeah. I mean, movies from this era always, I think, are great to see in a movie theater because there was no other way to see them and there was no consideration for seeing them another way. And so that's really how they're designed in this movie is incredibly beautiful and visually impressive. And certainly I've never seen it in a theater either, but I'm sure that is a great experience to have. Josh, I, uh, I watched it with Scarlett and we, I have a little interview with her coming up because I thought it was interesting to get her perspective because even when we were kids, I think we watched this at least once, twice a year. It was on a lot. And for her, it was, it's not, she's seen it, but it's not like something she sees every year. It's not like, oh, the Wizard is a Wizard of Oz is on this Sunday. You could sit around the TV and watch it, right? So it's a totally different viewing experience. And uh, it was, it was actually our first time watching it together. Yeah, I think that is an interesting thing that not, not just that it's, like not as prevalent for kids now, which is not surprising for a movie that is, uh, you know, 85 or whatever years old, but that even when it was 50 years old, when we were kids, it was so prevalent that it was on, like kids were so familiar with it. And, and I mean, I had that same experience. I, I was wondering as I watched it this time, like, were there times when I was a kid that I sat down and watched this like from beginning to end? And I'm not entirely sure, but certainly I had seen all of it at different times, you know, in different bits because it was on TV so often. And it was like, I don't know if it was, a, was it on a holiday time or something like that? It just feels like it was, yeah, this staple of childhood. Are you saying this might be your first time watching it all the way through? I'm not sure. It is possible. I can't tell you like a distinctive memory I have as a kid of sitting there and watching all of this movie. But on the other hand, this isn't one of those movies where I watched it and I was like, oh, wow. This part was new to me. I didn't remember that like everything was familiar about. That's good. I'm I'm glad that the cowardly lion didn't uh, pull a midway surprise on you there. Yeah. It was uh it was it, it, but it's, you know, it's 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 sort of a comfort thing, right? Because it's it's such an ingrained part of childhood for so many people. Right. And we're losing that here in America, Josh, with the technology I'm sure and the the wokeness and uh, no, you know all you stop, stop all speaking. you all you people and your Bidens, your Joe Biden. No, no, no. But I mean, I'm sure Scarlett has something. If it's not the Wizard of Oz, right? Something that is sort of there throughout her experience growing up. Something that she watches constantly, or that her friends watch with her, or whatever. It's just not the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, and it's less movies. Although now around the holiday times when we're recording this. By the way, I hope people understand I was being uh, 
facetious with my uh, political stances there because you know you know how audio gets clipped nowadays yes. and but with our uh, the hawks who are watching awesome movie here and listening and trying to poke holes and yeah no she's got stuff she wants. get the rest of Jason's tirade on our Patreon yeah, yeah please on the <laughs> on the QAnon board that I'm on all the time <laughs> no yeah uh, it's a lot more TV stuff but the holiday movies. Uh, I think more than anything else, like she has ones that she likes to come back to every year, just like we do. Right, right. That's what I'm saying is that, you know, and it's it's actually pretty amazing that The Wizard of Oz lasted as long as it did as that kind of thing for children who were born so many decades after this movie was released. Yeah, no one's watching Grapes of Wrath. These kids aren't watching that. <laughs> Maybe they are in school. I don't know. Uh, so this, of course, is based on the book. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum, which was published in 1900 and was hugely popular before this movie came out. He had published 13 books in his Oz series between 1900 and 1920. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz was first adapted as a stage musical in 1902. It had already been made into various short films, silent films, uh, animated, and there was a full feature film, silent version of this in 1925. So even going into this uh, before it became such a phenomenon as a movie, it was already this like massive cultural phenomenon as sort of a franchise. Have you ever seen that uh, 1925 silent film? I have not. I was busy this week and wasn't able to watch anything in addition to this. It, just looking on Letterboxd, it sounds like it's maybe not great and, uh, you know, more of a footnote. But I've seen other various versions later that I'm sure we'll talk about later, but I have not seen that silent version. I think you tried to track it down too, right? Jason? Yeah, it, was, it wasn't that easy to track down this week, so I didn't watch it either. But um, yeah, we've all seen other iterations of this. I haven't read any of the books. Obviously, Dave hasn't because he doesn't know how to read. Josh, have you? Mm -hmm. No, I haven't. And you know, I'm a little surprised that I haven't because certainly this is like a beloved kind of fantasy book series. And that's something that I would have been into like maybe in middle school or whatever. And I, I maybe as much as the movie was a, a staple of our childhoods, reading the books wasn't. I don't recall any like friends of mine having read the Oz books necessarily. Yeah. I, and, you know, I, I researched a lot, but I didn't see anything. I mean, there has to be other adaptations from other books, right? In this Oz series. Yeah, I mean, I think Ozma of Oz is one that has been adapted as more often. But I mean, this is by far the one that gets the most adaptations. And I think it's like, you know, like the Chronicles of Narnia, where we see the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first book adapted multiple times, but the later books in the series don't end up adapted nearly as often. And I think it's just the one that people are most familiar with from childhood. In your face, Bridge to Terabithia. That's not part of that series. I got nothing. Also, there is a Bridge to Terabithia movie, which is great, and I would recommend it highly. In my face. Yes. <laughs> so um, this movie was directed by Victor Fleming, who had quite a year in 1939, directed this film and Gone with the Wind, which is pretty amazing. Um, but in both cases, he wasn't the only director. Here he was brought in after the original director, Richard Thorpe, was fired after two weeks of shooting. Uh, George Cukor then came in to kind of oversee the transition. Then Victor Fleming was the director of the bulk of the shoot. And later when he had to leave to go direct Gone with the Wind, King Vidor came in and finished it. So quite a lineup of uh, 
sort of huge Hollywood directors from the 1930s. But even if Victor Fleming isn't the only or primary creative force here, the fact that he made both those movies in a single year is pretty amazing. Yeah, that's about as good as you can get. Uh, King Vidor sounds like the monarch of Liechtenstein to me. Yeah, no, he's a he's a very well-known classic Hollywood director, but uh, he came in later and uh, didn't even want people to know that he had worked on it because he didn't want to take any uh, attention away from Victor Fleming and didn't even reveal that that had happened until after Victor Fleming died. Um, this movie, in addition to its maybe box office success. No, it was a box office success. It was a box office success, yes. In addition to that success, it was nominated for six Oscars including Best Picture, Best Art Direction, Best Special Effects. It won Best Original Song for Somewhere Over the Rainbow, Best Original Score, and an Honorary Juvenile Oscar for Judy Garland that was for both this and the film Babes in Arms. And I thought this Juvenile Award was kind of fascinating. It was an honorary award that was given a total of 12 times by the Oscars. The last time it was given was to Haley Mills in 1960. It was a little miniature Oscar, was half the size of the regular Oscar. Well, that's adorable. Noel Langley, one of the writers on this, was also one of the writers on uh, Babes in Arms. So that was interesting. How old was Judy Garland when she made this? I 17, I believe. Yeah. And um, there's tons of stories about like the mistreatment she received, um, which nowadays uh, wouldn't happen. I hope not. But, one, uh, yeah, one hopes. Right. So, and I wanted to also shout out uh, Herbert Strothart, who won that Oscar for the best original score. He has 12 Oscar nods and the win for this one. And yeah, reading about it's 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 kind of horrifying because you watch this movie and it's it's so fun. It's so wholesome. It's like childhood memories and these lovely songs. And then you read the stories about the making of this movie and it's just one horrific thing after another, not only this mistreatment of Judy Garland, but the the awful like chemical makeup that they used on these actors who played the the lion and the tin man and the scarecrow and the witch and the like permanent damage that it did to their bodies and the injuries that they sustained. It's just, it's just horrifying really what they went through to make this movie. I think you're right. And with the witch, you know, there was not just the makeup, but there was that like trap door contraction that they used when she melts. And, um, that was, uh, so dangerous that Margaret Hamilton didn't come back to do the reshoot. And then her stand-in got injured with that. <laughs> and a smart, smart call on her part. But yeah, she got burns on her face from her makeup. Uh, Buddy Ebsen, who was originally cast as the Tin Man, uh, eventually had to drop out because he was poisoned by inhaling the fumes from the makeup that they used for him. I mean, it's just... There's no safety standards here, really. And I mean, there's like one casual line on the Wikipedia. It's like, oh, and they used asbestos for most of this stuff. Like, oh, OK. Yeah, you would think like, you know, the Buddy Epson thing, that would either today been a huge lawsuit. And and also like, hey, you got to hold up production until I'm back. But they're like, nah, bring in the next guy. Come on. We got we got deadlines to meet. Get the picture up and running. Right. I mean, and that's how things worked a lot in this era of Hollywood in the studio system where. All of these actors are under contract. They don't get to choose their roles. They're just thrown into whatever the studio decides that they're going to be cast in. And so, yeah, Buddy Epson is uh, recuperating. They did 
apparently change the composition of the makeup for the next guy. So oh, cause they, but did they do that out of safety precautions or were they like, Hey, we don't want another, um, you know, a holdup and with an actor getting sick. So let's come up with a safer makeup here. Right. Well, that's probably what it was, but ultimately the result was it was slightly safer for Jack Haley and slightly emphasis on the slightly. You mentioned the contract players. It's, you know, when you do the research on these people, it's like each one of these actors was in 165 movies from 1935 to 1936. It feels like, you know? Yeah. I mean, that was how things were in this era. And they just, I mean, for, for directors too, maybe not quite at that level, but it was common for major directors to, to make, you know, five, six movies in a year in the thirties and forties. So, um, that's kind of how the studio system worked. But even so, I mean, regardless of whether these actors were, were kind of, uh, just recruited for these parts. They all do great work, I think, here. I think it's uh, good. I, I I was kind of fascinated by uh, Bert Lahr on this one, The Cowardly Lion, because he's kind of been his own movie, it feels like, you know? <laughs> uh, he's just doing his own thing there, and it's like, it works, but like, really, it's totally different than the rest of the cast, it feels like. Yeah, he's doing this kind of like, why I ought to, yeah. you know, little voice, which I enjoy. Ain't it the what truth? A- Ain't it the truth? Yeah. <laughs> and it's great because it's like, it's definitely a, a, a 30s tough guy kind of persona. And and I like that about it. And one of, one of the few pleasant stories about the making of this film is that they had to retake a lot of his scenes because the other actors were cracking up at the way he read his lines and which is you know you can't blame them right yeah put him up put him up (laughs) (laughs) so um critics were mostly positive about this film and uh, i have to say that one of the things i'm very excited about for this season is all of the old-timey newspaper speak that we're gonna get and probably the names of these critics as well (laughs) yeah not not this time but i think probably in the future we will have those so Starting with Frank S. Nugent in the New York Times. Frank. Said, <laughs> what an old-timey yeah, name. What a crazy name. <laughs> Frank Nugent said, By courtesy of the Wizards or Hollywood, The Wizard of Oz reached the screen yesterday as a delightful piece of wonderworking, which had the youngster's eyes shining and brought a quietly amused gleam to the wiser ones of the oldsters. Not since Disney's Snow White has anything quite so fantastic succeeded half so well. A fairy book tale has been told in the fairy book style, with witches, goblins, pixies, and other wondrous things drawn in the brightest colors and set cavorting to a merry little score. It is all so well-intentioned, so genial, and so gay that any reviewer who would look down his nose at the fun-making should be spanked and sent (laughs) off supperless to bed. Yeah, that's right. You don't like the movie, you don't get to eat dinner. That's right. (laughs) He does go on to criticize some of the special effects. So uh, I like, you know, I li- he deserved a spanking too. I like the special effects. In fact, yeah, I do too. In fact, Josh, not since George Bill used A Trip to the Moon have I been so dazzled by the effects on the screen. They are impressive, although apparently they lost that Oscar. Um, <laughs> I should have looked up who they lost it to. Probably Gone with the Wind. That could be. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the, this is maybe from an era when, you know, now critics are more inclined maybe to really take children's movies seriously. But, you know, this is maybe from an era where the review is simply like, oh, the kitties liked it. And that's that's good enough. Although that is, is good enough. Yeah. 
you kids go to the the candy store, get yourself a pop and a licorice whip, and go watch the movies. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that is uh, what what the kids were were having in 1939. The uh, winner for best special effects was The Rains Came by okay. E.H. Hansen and Fred Serson. I don't know that movie, but it did beat Gone with the Wind, Only Angels Have Wings, The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, Topper Takes a Trip, Union Pacific, and The Wizard of Oz. Lots of nominees there, Josh. Yeah, I think they used to have more nominees back then. So I'm not familiar with that movie either. I've seen some of those others, but um, that's not one we're going to get to this season. And uh, it, it must have pretty impressive effects because this movie is is quite good in that regard well probably a lot of rain anyway this one just says yeah. a tornado but that right. one has rains <laughs> multi types of rains that is true Mists, came. yeah thunderstorms torrential downpours perhaps you will have to check into that sun showers out. yeah <laughs> So John C. Flynn in Variety was also positive about this film. He said, nothing comparable has come out of Hollywood in the past few years to approximate the lavish scale of this film musical extravaganza, in the making of which the ingenuity and inventiveness of technical forces were employed without stint of effort or cost. Except for opening and closing stretches of prologue and epilogue, which are visioned in a rich sepia, the greater portion of the film is in technicolor. Some of the scenic passages are so beautiful in design and composition as to stir audiences by their sheer unfoldment. Whether Oz will pay out on its heavy production investment is useless speculation, wholly dependent on, upon the breadth of its appeal and the effective showmanship of its handling. Yeah, I don't think I ever noticed the sepia, the copper tinges, the rust belt, uh rusting if you will there until this watch but i thought that was really effective and it's funny because like we all know this movie but like this was the first time i actually considered it as a musical as opposed to just a film right i think people forget you know the, the like virtually every song in this movie is like well known. fully yeah. you know enshrined in pop culture or whatever hitsville usa baby it really is. It really is. But people don't necessarily think of that first because it's such a big fantasy extravaganza. And um, one reason that you might not have noticed the sepia before is that apparently in TV airings for decades, they got rid of the sepia and just put it in regular black and white, which is dumb. Yeah, because that's how I remember watching it. So see, you can't trick me, big brother. Yeah, <laughs> I don't I don't recall either way. And I don't know at what point they they returned the sepia to various airings and maybe if you watched it like on a VHS tape or something it had the original uh coloring but for whatever reason black and white was what they showed on TV. Well, it's it wasn't until um King what was his name King Vidor King Vidor King Vidor was fired and Steven yeah. Soderbergh took over <laughs> and we got those sepia tones. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if uh Steven Soderbergh uh you know re-edited this film in one of his weird re-editing projects. I could see him doing that. Right, right. Um to to just do everything from the point of view of the scarecrow or Toto or something along those or lines. Or maybe, you know, edited it together with uh one of the various uh, you know, spin-offs or remakes, like he edited the two versions of Psycho together. Oh, that's cool. I never saw that, nor will I ever, but uh that's cool. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it either, but that was something that he did. So um, I did I did find one negative response here from a critic, although generally, again, it was positive, from but not ever Hirohito this. Tojo. Yeah, <laughs> Russell, Russell Maloney in The New Yorker 
said, fantasy is still Walt Disney's undisputed domain. Nobody else can tell a fairy tale with his clarity of imagination, his simple good taste, or his technical ingenuity. This was forcibly borne in on me as I sat cringing before MGM's Technicolor production of The Wizard of Oz, which displays no trace of imagination, good taste, or ingenuity. I will rest my case against The Wizard of Oz on one line of dialogue. It occurs in a scene in which the Wicked Witch is trying to persuade Dorothy, the little girl from Kansas, to part with a pair of magic slippers. The Good Witch interrupts them warning Dorothy not to give up the slippers, whereupon the Wicked Witch snarls, you keep out of this. Well, there it is. Either you believe witches talk like that, or you don't. Yeah. I don't. Since the Wizard of Oz is full of stuff as bad as that, or worse, I say it's a stinkeroo. Uh, Of course, at the end of that review, uh, he goes on to say, this is all uh, the fault of us giving women the right to vote. I <laughs> know it's not quite that bad, but it is kind of amazing to me that he quotes that he completely innocuous, forgettable line of dialogue as like his line in the sand. And I'm, I imagine he must hate that Bert Lar performance because he obviously thinks somehow that these magical creatures should not talk like modern people or whatever. And that's his big objection here. Oh yeah. And uh, you know, Dorothy on a journey alone, Letting a woman out of the house? What the heck? You know, you're, 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 you're ascribing viewpoints that he does not express in this review. But, <laughs> it uh, feels like it's not that far off, though. I mean, if he's that offended by the witch, he doesn't care that the witch wants to like murder the dog or anything like that. It's just like, how dare you talk to another witch like that? That's yeah. not how witches talk. Me and my coven say otherwise. Coven. Uh. Thank you, Mark Borchardt. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I think he's just right. The idea that somehow this is like, sounds too, it doesn't sound fantastical enough, or I, I don't know. How I do just, you think I'm he mostly, thinks witches sound, Josh? Yeah, I'm not sure. Like she should speak in, you know, iambic pentameter, like she's in a Shakespeare play or something like that. So I don't know. I just like that he used the word stinkaroo. Mm. I think that was my favorite part. Look out for Josh's reviews on uh, in old timey newspapers coming soon. Yeah. So, um, as we said, there's, there's a ton of stuff going on with this film, but is there anything else in particular that you want to mention about the background? There are so many drafts written by, uh, so many different screenwriters, including Mank. Yeah. Where was this in Mank? Yeah. So, um, it's funny when they're like, Hey, we gotta, we gotta appeal to the kids. So let's put a jitterbug scene in there, you know? So there's all types of stuff. Like that. And then also, you know, Ogden Nash wrote a version of this. Uh, they almost, the studio almost cut somewhere over the rainbow because they were like, eh, it's too long. So it's just funny how these things end up working out, Josh. Right. I mean, I think it's good that they did cut that jitterbug because I feel like, as you said, that it was obviously meant to appeal to the kids or whatever. And it would have made this seem incredibly dated, you know, like a, like a movie that put the Macarena in a fantasy story or something Ooh, like that. Now you're onto something. Yeah. So obviously, as we've said, both of us, you know, watch this many times as as kids. Is is that the case for you too, Dave? Uh, well, like you, Josh, I don't remember like watching it in full as a kid or anything, but I did see it in the theater uh, at the 80th anniversary five years ago and then did a piecing it together, breaking it apart episode on it. So, uh, yeah, that was my first time watching it like in full as far as I remember anyway. How was that theater experience? It was really cool. Like, you know, it 
obviously on the big screen with the, like those giant sets and all the production value and everything like that, it, you know, it really, it was big for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I think that's the thing about a lot of movies from this era that I'm sure we'll keep talking about. So yeah. we'll come back in a moment and get into more of our general thoughts on The Wizard of Oz. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this season on the films of 1939. We are talking about The Wizard of Oz. And um, Jason, you said this was the first time you looked at this film as a musical. Yeah, I mean, we all know it as a movie and we know there are, like we said, every song is so well known. But I had never really considered this like a musical for some reason. Am I the only one, Josh? No, I mean, I think one of the reasons is that because it's not, Like there is a stage production, but I don't think this is based on the stage production. And so this isn't something that we see, you know, it doesn't show up on Broadway per se. I mean, we have like Wicked that shows up on Broadway, but these songs in this story don't show up that way necessarily or in like community theater production so much. And so I think this is known so much more primarily as a film that maybe people, I don't know, gloss over. The, the songs, even though, I mean, the songs are so famous. Somewhere Over the Rainbow is such a, a standard. I mean, I feel like that's one of those songs that's performed so often that people might not even realize it's from a movie. I mean, and there's music the entire way through, whether it's the underscore or just like the repetition of we're off to see the wizard or, you know, if I only had a blank, you know. So it's there constantly. It maybe I have no... I have no answer for this. The wizard pulled one over on me. Yeah. I mean, for me, I feel like this is the first time probably that I watched this movie and thought about it in any sort of analytical or critical way, because, you know, as a childhood staple, it's not even it's even unlike, I think, other movies that maybe I watched as a kid and liked because it was just something that was like a background element of childhood. You know, it's like like. Christmas or whatever. You know, you don't think about its qualities. It's just there. Are you saying Santa Claus is a wizard? I mean, he would have to be, right? In order to get to all those houses. <laughs> oh, I never considered that easy. Is he a musical? Because that would really change things for me. I mean, I'm sure there are Santa Claus related musicals. Well, yeah, of course. Um, the, uh, on to your point, Josh, what I really kind of noticed this time around was the production design, all those really cool sets. You know, the practical effects on um, the costumes, which are great, though dangerous, as we've learned, you know. Right. Um, but yeah, that's really what kind of did it for me was like, hey, this is a cool set that they've made to look like Kansas or an approximation of it. And then how whimsical the, you know, Munchkin land is and, and everything. I, I really dug into that. Yeah, it is beautiful. And I think, you know, regardless of it not winning that special effects Oscar, like a lot of this stuff looks really good. And like, you know, it's hard to say, like, does it hold up? I mean, you can watch this movie and see the matte paintings and they're obviously matte paintings. They don't look like a real place, but I feel like they still look really good, which I think are two different things. And especially now with CGI, I think we're so focused on the idea of special effects looking real, looking like they're not special effects. And there's value in stuff that doesn't look real, but still looks wonderful. It looks whimsical. It looks fantastical. It looks beautiful. Uh, That definitely makes sense for this piece. And part of that is because these are all practical effects, obviously, right? Like, I think 
the thing with those CGI effects is that when they look bad, they take you out of the movie. This, as you said, is a whimsical, magical world where it makes sense and also uh, just showcase this level of craft by everyone who's working. Yeah. And I mean, the way they set this up too, where they're really emphasizing the idea that this is probably like Dorothy's dream. I mean, that that makes it even more kind of relevant for it to be like fake. I mean, fake is a sounds like a negative word, but you know, not realistic or whatever. And like, that's how dreams are. Right. It's a fever dream. Yeah. I mean, you know, this shouldn't look like a dream from uh, Inception or something like that, where it's all very cold and and realist and logical or whatever i uh i wonder who inception dorothy to get her to the land of oz that well i mean clearly she has been inceptioned because right every person in her life shows up as a figure in the land of oz you know the three farm hands on uh, auntie m and uncle henry's farm are the tin man and the cowardly lion and the scarecrow and then the uh, awful neighbor shows up as the Wicked Witch. The sort of traveling fortune teller guy shows up as the wizard. So it, it, definitely she's been uh, inceptioned here. There's a lot going on. Hmm, we should get to the bottom of this. Someone should true crime this thing up. <laughs> I mean, it's not, a, it's not a crime per se. <laughs> oh, never mind. Then I take it back. Hey, you know who, uh, who was real motor on this thing? Who really did a lot of work? Toto. Toto did, yeah. He was. Uh, I know. Uh, you know. Dave's always a big fan of uh, of dogs in films. Is this uh, one of the greatest dog performances, Dave? Would you say it's up there for sure? Although Toto does seem to be uh, kind of doing his own thing in a lot of scenes. Like he's just kind of like looking off screen sometimes, barking at stuff. But uh, he's awesome, though. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of scenes where Judy Garland is holding him. Because mm-hmm. presumably they didn't want him to run away <laughs> or whatever. Yes, exactly. But I mean, I think it works for the story because because Dorothy is so attached to Toto. I mean, really, her entire experience is motivated by her love for Toto. You know, she's running off to rescue him, and that's why she gets caught in the tornado or whatever. Yeah. So I feel like her clinging to Toto when she's in this strange world actually makes sense for her as a character. Yeah, and part of what makes the witch so great is how she wants the dog. You know, so like that's awesome. How old do you think Judy Garland uh, acts in this movie? I mean, it's a very heightened performance. So on the one hand, you could maybe say that it is a little much, but I think it's right for what they were going for. And I, you know, it's fascinating to read about um, that original director and the footage, uh, Richard Thorpe, the original director and the footage that they shot when he worked on it, which apparently is lost where he had Judy Garland speak in some kind of baby doll voice and put her in a blonde wig. I mean, that sounds like it's much worse. Right. I'm not, I'm not, not, not questioning nor uh, knocking the acting. I'm just saying like, what age does that character with that affectation appear to you to be? Right. That is an interesting question. And that was why I was also wondering how old was she? Because she's certainly playing younger than 17. And I'm not sure how old the character is meant to be in the book. Uh, she speaks older than that. You think she does? I mean, I feel like her 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 attitude is very childlike, though. Uh, yeah, but her diction, her cadence, it's all so proper. You know, it feels like, and as you said, it's a different way of acting, uh, you know, back then. It, it feels like an older way of speaking. And obviously, she's got such a, a powerful voice that, like, you know, it's it's a weird amalgamation of, like, we have to make sure that She's younger, 
but also she's mature enough to do all these things that we would have a, you know, an adult uh, who's older do. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the diction that that is partially just the way that acting was in this era and that a lot of child performances are really sort of overly, you know, uh, carefully composed that way. But that is interesting. I mean, the thing about Judy Garland, of course, which is sad about Judy Garland, is that she had to mature very, very quickly. And even though she was only 17 when she made this movie, she'd been through some shit, you know, <laughs> and maybe has that more adult manner of speaking. But it, it does seem like the way that Dorothy behaves is very childlike. What, uh, what things, I mean, I'm not an expert on Judy Garland. What had already occurred in her life at this point in time? I mean, I don't know exactly the timeline and I suppose I could be wrong, but I think, you know, the things that you were talking about with like the abuse that she suffered on the set of this film and, and harassment, um, sexual lewd comments from male uh, studio executives and people like that, and as well as being, you know, fed various drugs to keep her peppy. Mm. I think that's something that had probably been going on already for a while. Yeah. And I think that, uh, that, that drug use is, I mean, obviously we saw how it played out in her life, but how many other actors in this and beyond were just affected by that as like, ah, then this is the industry, kid. Right, of course. And I mean, at this time, certain of those drugs perhaps were not regarded as harmful so much. Yeah, my dad always tells me like, oh, when I was in high school, I was on speed. I'm like, what? And he's like, Oh, yeah, it was prescribed. It wasn't like I was doing anything illicit. They were just like, hey, this will help you pay attention. Right, exactly. And I think that was the case for a lot of people in this era. And, you know, you read about the 12-hour days of shooting on this film, and people probably needed some some pick me I mean, 12 hours is a normal day on a film set. Right, but I think yeah, it's all I, the danger and uh, how long the shoot went on. Beyond. Right. Yeah. I mean, the 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 costumes and makeup, like we said, and the the incredibly hot lights that were necessary to shoot in Technicolor at this time, where I guess it was oh, made yeah. of like you know over a hundred degrees on the set every day. When you're in that makeup and everything, it's got to be really unpleasant. Right. And um, the inability to eat solid foods for a lot of the people in costumes. So, <laughs> yeah, that's no good. But you that's know what, no Josh? Good. It was all for our entertainment. Right. I mean, and I, like I said before, I think like that's the amazing thing is that if you watch this movie, you wouldn't guess that these people were miserable while they were making it because it's so joyous and it's so fun. And they bring that across in their characters. You know, it's the kind of movie that you're not really thinking about the plot necessarily or any inconsistencies. I know Jason is big on being the logic police here. And of course, you can forgive a lot of that because it's meant to yeah, be a dream. Yeah, this is fine. I have no issues. Yeah, I know. I mean, and I, I think it's fine too. But I think either way, you're not even really inclined to wonder about that because you're just so caught up in the in the, the magic of it and the, the infectiousness of the songs and the characters and the colors and all of that just really draws you in. And it all still looks so nice. Like, it's all so pretty and uh, interesting. And like you were saying, like, they're, you know, when you get to Oz or like, or even the tree scene, right? Speaking of Lord of the Rings and talking trees, right? right? Like, yes, you know, it's clearly, um, you know, spoiler, they're not real talking trees. Right. But it's mm. just fun to look at. It's just fun to watch. Yeah, that was one that was one thing I think that I had forgotten the little talking tree moment and I was pretty delighted to see. And I just, you know, again, the, the thing that the guy in the New Yorker hates where it's like uh, you know, very modern sounding like, "Hey, 
how'd you like it if somebody picked something off of you? <laughs> it just, it, that contrast there between this, this fantasy world and the way some of the characters talk, I think was really enjoyable. I thought so. Did you have a favorite of the three? You know, I remember as a kid, I liked the Tin Man the best, but on this watch, uh, I don't know if I liked the Tin Man the best. Yeah, I mean, they all have their own fun qualities. I think the Scarecrow is maybe the most uh, charismatic and and because he shows up first, he gets the most time to develop as a character to whatever degree anyone is a developed character in this film. I did like Burt Lars, you know, tough guy, 1930s bit, although I think at times it gets a little much. Not that I have the objections that of, of the way, you know, it sounds in a fantasy world, but it's kind of one note, one could argue, I suppose, but it's not bad. It's interesting that they all get one solo song, but he gets two solo songs. Right. Well, he gets the moment where he his version of if I only had a whatever is very short and they both kind of like muscle in on it. So maybe they wanted to give him another moment to shine. Uh, I mean, Bert Lahr was a veteran, you know, stage and vaudeville performer. So I thought that was interesting, not just the take on the character, but also in the if I were king of the forest, the way he just held those notes, you know, and just kind of the vibrato on that. Right. I mean, all three of these guys, him and Ray Bolger and Jack Haley had a lot of stage experience and, you know, certainly plenty of, of singing experience as well. And, and they bring that there. So uh, what did you think of the wizard, Frank Morgan as the wizard slash uh, the fortune teller from the carnival? Uh, he's fun. He's a he's a fun wizard, Josh. It's one of the yes. fun wizards. So I thought I, I liked him. He's good. I don't know. I liked them all. I don't really have yeah. a. Uh, I don't have a uh, an insult for him, Josh. Okay, I wasn't inviting you to insult him. I was just just asking your general. I know you want me to go off of an an, an anti wizard rant here, but I'm not going to do it. Okay, that's that's good. I I don't I don't need that from you at all. So um, yeah, I mean he's 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 a lot of fun, and uh, the Emerald City too. I mean we we travel through Oz. We have the yellow brick road and the forest and Munchkin land. And it's all so amazing. And then you, it just kind of keeps going. You get to the Emerald city and it's its own really amazingly designed kind of place with Emerald, everything and the costumes and the way that's all set up. And then they go to the witch's castle. And it's also, I mean, that's maybe the least impressive just because it looks like a normal castle that you might see in another movie. But the, the range of stuff that that's in this film is pretty impressive. I mean, honestly, I thought, one of my favorite things were the performances of the little people as the witches flying monkey henchmen. Like that, that's really hard to encapsulate and personify. And, you know, now we see like all the motion capture stuff that actors like Andy Serkis do for like Planet of the Apes. But these guys were doing it in, you know, that practical effects style. And I think they did a great job. Yeah, absolutely. And there's one performer and now I, I neglected to note down his name, but I was just looking through various people. And one of the people who played one of the, I think maybe the main flying monkey and in Wikipedia, it's like, ah, he played monkeys in multiple different films or whatever. Like that was his specialty was like being able to mimic, you know, monkey movements or whatever. And they got him to play the head flying. Monkey. I think so I, I kind of love that. Pat Walsh was the Could be. actor you're talking. Yeah. So just, just, you know, fun, fun stuff all around there. I think Josh, uh, they almost had Eddie Cantor play the Scarecrow. What do you think of that? I mean, I haven't seen a lot of it. I feel like the main impression I have of Eddie Cantor is from watching Boardwalk Empire, where he's like a, a, a occasional guest starring person. I mean, from what I'm aware of about him, I think he was so famous on his own for being Eddie Cantor that it's one of those things that like he would have been distracting 
you know, because people would just think of him in his persona and not immersed in the character. Yeah, I that's, think that's just fair. Kind of, that's a fair. That's a fair thing. I mean, we've talked about that when you know when we recently did RoboCop. If we had if Schwarzenegger had played RoboCop, you would be oh, that's Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's not RoboCop. Right, but what if Schwarzenegger played the Scarecrow? Oh, that would be good. If I only had the brain. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. That's what I was hoping for there. <laughs> it worked out. Yeah. So, Dave, what you did you enjoy it? it? I maybe lesser than watching it in a theater this time. Yeah, I mean, in the theater, it's such a just a big production, but it was it was a lot of fun still watching it at home. Um, you know, Jason said he always liked the Tin Man growing up. I, I love the Tin Man's dance moves, which clearly you know inspired Michael Jackson. Yes, know. I was thinking that too. Yeah. So yeah, that was a great sequence. And uh, yeah, it's just fun from beginning to end. So Josh, uh, some of the other alternate casting I found was uh, Shirley Temple and Deanna Durbin as uh, Dorothy. I mean, Shirley Temple, I don't know how old she would have been, but I feel like, again, that's such a um, well-known persona. It might have taken you out of the movie. Yeah. And I'm not sure either how old she was, but I feel like she was younger definitely and that would have really gotten more of the like kind of little girl qualities of dorothy which i don't know if that would have been better yeah and then wc fields ed win and wallace berry as uh, oz i think wc fields would have been a fun Oz. that would have been fun and he's another one who has such an established persona that that could have been distracting but i think for oz right who's a minor presence that probably would have worked yeah and he's this traveling kind of showman so i think that right. would have worked well also Yes, we we may be talking about W.C. Fields later this season. Ooh! Just trying to tease a whole bunch of stuff coming up here. Yeah, the Fields heads are getting ready. <laughs> they are, mm -hmm. I hope they are. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Is any Anything else that, that stuck out to you watching it this time? Uh, no, I mean, I, I, th I think, like I said, it's, it's uh, I really kind of looked at it from more of like the, the musical angle and also from that uh, production design angle. So I, I, yeah. I, it was fun. Both of those are just absolutely amazing. And I think, too, if you haven't seen this maybe in a while, to realize how many of these songs are just like, even aside from this film, are, are just part of American culture or whatever, or even some of the lines. I mean, it's amazing to me. It's not, not just that they're quotable, but that something like, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain has become like, an adage that people say, you know, it's like a truth about life or something. And it's amazing that these things have gotten this, this permeated our culture in such a way. Is, as they say, the first truly American fairy tale. They do mm -hmm. say that. So it feels weird, almost like I feel like I couldn't even rate this, but let's do it anyway. You want to rate this out of five uh, munchkins? Five ruby slippers? Sure. That's a uh, normal number of ruby slippers to have. So it gets, uh, it gets three and a half from me. I, uh, you know, I got, uh, I got almost two pairs of Ruby slippers. There. That's pretty good considering yeah. how much they get auctioned off for all the time. They're very valuable now. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to also give this three and a half, but I feel like I could give it any high number. I mean, it's just like, yeah, we're dumb idiots. You know, it's, it's like ranking, you know, uh, your family or something. I don't know. Ooh, you know rank just, your family, Josh. No, I will not. I will not do that. I mean, rating, you know, rating that or, or, or again, something like, you know, giving your second grade teacher uh, a star rating or something. Mm. I mean, it's just, it's just part of childhood. Misinterdosia, five stars. All right. Mm. That's good to know. So uh, Dave, how would you rate this? Yeah, I went with four, but I, I agree with you guys. It's just like, it's, what's the point of rating the Wizard of Oz? You know? yeah, let's right. rate Josh's family instead. <laughs> <laughs> 
That sounds fun. So Jason, when we come back, we're going to hear a little from your daughter, Scarlett, about her thoughts on this film. Yeah, Josh, it takes a kid to tell adults what idiots we are, and I hope she does it. So mm-hmm. come back for Scarlett's thoughts on The Wizard of Oz. Okay, I'm here with the most special of guests. It's Scarlett. Hi. Hi, Scarlett. How many times have you seen The Wizard of Oz? Two or three. That's it? Just two or three? Yeah. What was the first time you saw it? Do you remember? Mm, like when I was very little. Who did you watch it with? I don't know. You don't Nana, know? Probably. Your grandma, yeah. So you you don't have many memories of it. Like when I was a kid, we used to watch it all the time. You just watch it. And what did you think of it the first time you saw it? I don't remember. What did you think of it last night when we watched it? It was good. What do you like about it? Um, the witches. The witches? The Even witch. Really? Yeah. Even when she dies? Mm, I don't like that part because okay. I want her to live. You want the you're so you're rooting for the wicked witch in this film. Yes. The most unlikable character there is who, you know, taunts the dog and Well, if you knew her backstory from Wicked you would know more. Why is she taking it out on the dog though? I don't know, she's a wicked witch. What about the music? A lot of good songs in there, don't you think? Yeah. Do you have any favorites? No, just uh, you like them all. Is there anything else you liked about the movie? How did you feel when it went from black and white into color? The whole movie needs to be color. Really? Yeah. And it's a movie from 1939, and you watch a lot of, like, you know, stuff from today. Do you think it holds up? Yeah. Yeah? Sort of. Sort of. And uh, out of five dead witches, how do you rate this? One to five. One is the worst. But I'd, I'd rather it be one. Like okay, seven. then say five ruby slippers. Five ruby slippers. And three and three quarters. All right. Thanks, Scarlett. I'll get you, my pretty! Thanks, Scarlett. That was fun. My daughter giving some... Uh, some hot takes on the wizard of oz there so i enjoyed that because like i said josh it's different for her watching it than when we were watching it as kids and you know even now like what are the things that she responds to and what are the things that just don't uh kind of resonate with her right yeah i i think so and and this is a movie that is made for kids and that it was appreciated by kids for for decades so um good to get that perspective and see how you're preparing her to take over as co-host of awesome movie year. Yeah. Well, Hey, when we, um, when we get to 76, you should hear what she thinks about taxi driver. <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs> I'm sure that was about the age that Dave's parents showed him taxi driver. So it probably will work. Sounds out. Sounds about right. Um, so, I mean, this movie has a massive legacy, of course, because as we said, I mean, it's regarded as one of the greatest films of all time. It is, as we mentioned from the Institute of People Watching Movies, the most mm. seen movie apparently ever made. It's been re-released tons of times. I mean, it seems like it ends up back in theaters every year in some capacity. It still airs on TV, uh, been released in every single home video format. 
you know, currently streaming, et cetera. So, I mean, I think even though maybe kids like Scarlett aren't watching it in the way that we did, it's still pretty ubiquitous. And I think it was interesting, Jason, that you were like, oh yeah, she's only seen it once or twice. Like that's the standard. Not she had never heard of it, but she only watched it once or well, twice. Well, right. But I think that's it. Because like, you know, we watched it on Max, which, you know, as kids, it was like, you you know, it's ABC Family Sunday Night or whatever, right? Sunday Family Night. So it's just a different way of watching things in a different uh, world, Josh. Uh, the kids are coming up in. But it, it's cool that, you know, some of it still holds up to her on a level that it did for us. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's maybe more if it's on Max, it's like, you know, kids' parents have to choose like, hey, watch this movie. Let me show it to you, which I'm sure is happening. But it's not as much that stumbling upon it or what. Well, I do uh, also, you know, like to um, show her some old stuff, even if she doesn't like it. Just like I've shown her some Chaplin shorts just because it's like, you know, good to ingratiate that culture into, into the kids. I agree. You're doing a great job. there. Thanks, Josh. And if anyone knows about parenting, it's you. Yeah, that is not the case at all. Um, Jason, have you ever watched this with the dark side of the moon as the sound? I mean, this is an important thing that I'm glad you brought up. I don't think I've ever watched it like that, but I've seen a dark side of the moon uh, laser light show. So I'm wondering why they didn't just do that with like laser lights of the Wizard of Oz. But, um, you know, I, I would like to do that at some point in time. Yeah, that is a big thing, syncing up the Pink Floyd album with this. And I have not done it either, but they've shown it. Uh, the Sci-Fi Center here in Vegas, as well as uh, Snappy Burger, the like uh, little drive through place that we have here, has shown. Uh, I remember when I uh, interviewed the owner of Snappy Burger and he told me, I don't know if they do this again, but he would show it. And because it's a drive-in, you just tune into a radio station for the soundtrack. And he had one station that played the regular sound and one station that was playing the dark side of the moon. So you could kind of flip back and forth or whatever, which seemed like a pretty cool. Oh, it's too bad. He didn't have like a splitter. So you could have one in each year. (laughs) Well, Mm. if you bring your own or whatever, I don't know, but uh, you know, it's certainly a popular thing. And I imagine that one or both of those venues will do that again in the future here. I'd be down to do that. So if any of you are showing dark side of the rainbow, let us know here at awesome movie year. And we will, uh, we will show you that all in all, we are not just another brick in the wall. That is the wrong Pink Floyd. Damn it! Uh, (laughs) There are tons and tons of sequels, spinoffs, remakes. Um, You know, the source material, the L. Frank Baum books are in the public domain, so anyone can adapt them in any way. There are certain elements of this film that were created for the film that are still under copyright, like the Ruby Slippers, but generally the story and the characters can be adapted freely. Um, You know, we don't need to name every single one. There is a sort of quasi-official sequel from 1972, an animated film called Journey Back to Oz, in which Liza Minnelli, the daughter, of course, of Judy Garland, does the voice of Dorothy. I've never seen that. I think it's supposed to be pretty bad. It's hard to find. Much like that silent film version, I guess. So we'd have to, you know, do do some real, put some real effort into tracking down these various uh, other versions. Um, the Wiz, of course, in 1978, the musical... Uh, version, which I've not seen, but Jason, have you seen that? I started watching it, but I got uh, kind of off course, but I would watch it. Sydney Lumet, you know, so, you know, these are all awesome movie. You're all stars. Liza, Sydney, you know, we got a lot going on here. Sam Raimi did a remake of uh, sorts of Oz the Great and Powerful, right? Yeah, another favorite here. And I kind of like that Sam Raimi film, even though it was mostly trashed. 
by by critics and fans, really everyone. I just remember James Franco saying "Zim Zala Din" or something like that, and that was like, why is it yeah. So. Who is James Franco versus Frank Morgan? <laughs> Would you prefer? <laughs> I'm going to take Frank Morgan, uh, uh, but I have never seen Frank Morgan uh, play Tommy Wiseau, so you know, yeah, I'll give that I one bet he to could Franco. do it. Yeah. I bet he could do it. But no, Frank Morgan, if you look up, like, again, like we talked about, like, these credits, it's like, you know, 700 radio shows, 400 movies. And then right. 1940 came and he went off to the war, fought for a few <laughs> years. I don't know if that's all true, but they're all <laughs> like that. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, it really is how a lot of these working actors, you know, especially those kind of journeyman actors who are not like super famous, you know, how that happened for them in this era. Well, yeah, but that's, um, a, that's you know, it's a, uh, hey, man, you got to work. Uh, speaking of these remakes, Josh, did you know that there is one in the works right now with Kenya Barris attached to write and direct? I don't know if that's a good idea. But uh, yeah, there's always something in the works. I mean, of course, we mentioned Wicked earlier, which is a hugely popular stage musical. Uh, that's a good one. And the movie version of that is is on the way. I think it's like a two-part movie directed by John M. Chu. and. Um, yeah, we'll see. I did. I also saw it on stage, actually, here at the Smith Center, and and enjoyed it. You know, uh, you know, though, what I would do with that movie? Make it one part. <laughs> That's. I feel like it's great could idea. be really applied to any two part movie. Um, but I, I yes, I, I I agree with you. So, but we'll see how that comes out. Um, I I quite like Return to Oz from nineteen eighty five, the Disney movie that was famously a flop at the time, but um, is a big cult classic and is incredibly dark and, you know, scary for children, but is really well done. And talk about creative practical effects and everything with Feruza Balk as the sort of traumatized older Dorothy. And uh, yeah, I like that film a lot. Have you seen that? No, but that sounds good. I got to I got to check that one out after The Wiz. I'm going to finish The Wiz first, Josh. The Wiz is great. The Wiz is great. Yeah. Josh, what about Judy Garland? Do you think she gets the credit she deserves as this legend, you know, meet me in St. Louis, Jesuit at Nuremberg, obviously such a great live performer, but you know, the same way, like when we talked about Marilyn Monroe, all the paparazzi storm surrounding her is like, does she get the credit as the star that she was for everything she was capable of? I mean, I think she has more so lately. I think as time has passed, and all of the like scandal or whatever has faded from people's memories and we're not watching or seeing you know that kind of coverage what we're doing is we're watching the movies and the tv specials and the concerts that she made when she was alive and seeing her great talents i do think she gets more respect i mean there was that biopic about her with renée zellweger which did focus on her later years and some of her troubles but i think that partly at least served to celebrate her talents and yeah, she's amazing. I mean, Mimi in St. Louis is fantastic. Uh, Easter Parade, The Harvey Girls, a couple other great musicals that I've seen from this era that she was in. And just, just she has this mesmerizing presence when she's, you know, bringing the full weight of her talents to something that that is fantastic. Uh, I think that's true. She's the first woman to win the uh, Grammy Award for Album of the Year, Judy at Carnegie Hall. And I would love to listen to that or find, I don't know if it was a video, taped do that and then watch Liza with a Z afterwards, which as you know, I'm a big fan of. Right. The Bob Fosse special, right? That was uh Liza Minnelli. Thanks, maybe. Josh, for clarifying what that is. You nailed well, it. People might not know. Josh Frank Morgan uh was nominated for two Academy Awards, 
Best Actor in The Affair of Cellini, and Best Supporting Actor in Tortilla Flat. Tortilla Flat, also directed by Victor Fleming, I believe. What a run he went on. Yes. So, I mean, as we said, all three of the, you know, um, companion, Dorothy's companion, the actors, Ray Bolger, John Lahr, Jack Haley, had major, major careers on stage, in film, on TV, just tons and tons of credits. Um, Ray Bolger was also in the Harvey Girls with Judy Garland and was in the 1961 version of Babes in Toyland, which is another kind of beloved childhood classic musical. Um, and he has, a, I thought it he was, has a Tony for Where's Charlie? Best lead actor. Um, I found it fascinating that Burt Lahr was the star of the first American production of Waiting for Godot. Yeah, but it was a big hit in Europe. I guess he toured it in Europe. It, it didn't maybe uh, make as much noise over here. But, uh, but what if... Yeah, if he had done it as the Cowardly Lion, is that where you were going with it? I was. I didn't want to interrupt your more serious observation that you were making there. <laughs> but, but I was thinking the same thing. Like, what a strange way to perform it. But I think, obviously, we're joking. It just shows the type of range he had as a performer. Right, right. And I think all of these people did. But, you know, one thing that happens, of course, because of the success of this film is that they're like you look, you click on, you know, Wikipedia entries for all of these people. And the first thing says best known for their role in The Wizard of Oz. Like that was the thing that defined the careers of pretty much all of these people, maybe except Judy Garland, because she did so many other amazing things. But the rest of them, Margaret Hamilton as well who played the witch, had a huge career into like the 1970s, but often was doing little cameos as a witch character or right. whatever that were kind of winking at what people were familiar with. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing because like Charlie Grapewin, who played, um, you know, Uncle Henry was also uh, James Joad in The Grapes of Wrath. So it's kind of, uh, or Grandpa William James Joad there. So it, it, a little interesting how, you know, one movie could just take over entire careers like that. Um, Josh, do you remember where we talked about Jack Haley, the Tin Man, before? I don't. Did we talk about him in another one of our episodes? Uncredited. His final performance. He was the master of ceremonies in New York, New York. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, and I'm sure that was, you know, because, of course, that movie is very consciously throwing back to classic musicals, that that was something that Scorsese wanted as a reference to classic musicals. I guess. I mean... If you believe he knows film history, I guess that makes sense. I mean, so. you know, as we established in that episode, he was on a lot of drugs <laughs> around that time, but I think he still was probably familiar. I'm sure. I'm obviously being facetious. Josh, Billy Burke, yes. you got to talk about Glinda. Come on, man. Best uh, yeah. best supporting actress nomination for Merrily We Live. And, you know, she uh, she is um, the witch we all aspire to be. <laughs> sure. she's She's very... She's kind of condescending, though, right? A little bit, the good witch. And she's like, Dorothy could just click her heels and go home. But she's like, oh, go to the wizard. Take this long, perilous journey. Maybe die. See you later. <laughs> I think that's fair. I was thinking the same thing. I was like, if you could do all these things, why don't you just do it? Like, what? what is this? Are you just getting enjoyment of watching this uh, poor, troubled Dorothy, like, walk through the forest and deal with all these obstacles? Yeah, I mean, maybe being, you know, she's not really a good witch. I, this is all the stuff that like Wicked deals with, I think, right? I mean, as uh, as you know from listening to my interview with Scarlett, she was quite upset about how the Wicked Witch was treated. It is unfair. <laughs> that was, uh, you know, really uh, rectified or at least attempted in that uh, in that play. Um, 
as you know, the idea of, of, of this movie defining people's careers, the, the actors who played the munchkins, of course, you know, at that time and, and now too, really, there aren't as many opportunities for little people actors. And, you know, so many of them were just defined by having been in this film and they would do, you know, conventions and stuff forever. The final surviving cast member of this film was Jerry Marin, who was one of the munchkins and he died in 2018. So, you know, 80 years or whatever of, of people, you know, making these appearances related to having been in the Wizard of Oz. Josh, what about that hot rumor about the munchkin who killed himself in one of the shots of the film? Have you ever heard that? I haven't, but I'm guessing that like the uh, the ghost in Three Men and a Baby that we talked about, that's probably just an urban legend. Yeah, or the penis on the cover of The Little Mermaid box. We never did an episode on The Little Mermaid. I'm just talking. Okay. <laughs> Victor Fleming, this was kind of toward the end of his career. He had been very, very prolific, as we say, you know, that directors were going back to the silent era. He made, um, I think, five or six more movies after this, including, of course, Gone with the Wind in the same year. Uh, a guy named Joe that he made after this was also, you know, is, is a pretty big classic. His final film was Joan of Arc in 1948, and he died fairly young in 1949. But it's interesting to me that we don't, you know, we're going to talk about so many directors this season that are considered in this, the pantheon of like great American filmmakers. And Victor Fleming really isn't in there despite this insane accomplishment. And not just that, like look at these two movies in the same year. It's not like these were two easy, like single room talkies, right? Where it just back and forth. These are like epic productions here. I was trying to think of some like analogous year that some other major director has had and the best. Soderbergh, Traffic and Aaron Brockovich. That's a good one. I was thinking of Spielberg with uh, Jurassic Park and Schindler's List, which oh. I think have that same dichotomy yeah. in terms of style. Yeah, yeah. Yours is probably a better fit. But I mean, that was obviously a huge accomplishment for Soderbergh, too. And, you know, didn't he get nominated twice for Best Director for both of those yeah. films he, that year? he beat himself. And he's yeah. still angry about it. <laughs> How good. How about Josh uh, Ty West for uh, Pearl and X? I mean, I love those films, but I don't think it's quite the same. Oh, okay. Never mind. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, Dave, do you have any thoughts on the legacy of this? Is this a musical influence on you ever? Uh, No, but it it was probably the biggest influence on one of my all-time favorite movies, Army of Darkness. So, there you go. Yeah. Well, Sam Raimi, obviously a fan, you know, going on to make his own Oz film. Yeah. I remember when I watched that Oz film... Uh, I was like, this is just Army of Darkness for kids. And then I went back and watched Wizard of Oz. I was like, oh, this is Army of Darkness for kids. So yeah. <laughs> I think that why. was what Victor Fleming had in mind when he was making <laughs> yeah. this film, was Army of Darkness for kids. Say this remake goes forward. Who do you cast as Dorothy? Is it someone like Zendaya or is she too old already to play that part? Or what do you do? I mean, I... I think she's too old, but yeah, you got... It's going to end up being some pop star or some like Disney, you know, the equivalent of like, you know, Selena Gomez, but when she was much younger or someone like that, Miley Cyrus, you know, whoever is the current, you know, I, I'm not sure. You could ask Scarlett. Scarlett would probably know who who would be the one to be cast yeah, as Dorothy in this. Maybe. Thomas McKenzie could do the voice. Do the Dorothy that, voice? That little voice. Yeah. Yeah. Or or, or Mia Goth, her, uh, her yeah. natural speaking voice that sounds like a Victorian child. It's going to be a very sure. strange uh, remake. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's like, right, we're going to get like, what, Seth Rogen is the cowardly lion or something like that, right? Isn't that where we would end up? I think you're pretty, uh, pretty accurate right there. (laughs) Did you have any other thoughts on that? I don't know. I kind of think Sam Richards is the Tin Man. That would be a cool casting move right there. And then maybe make the Scarecrow a woman, like a Melissa McCarthy or something like that. 
this is a terrible movie already. <laughs> well, I'm not making it, so don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the Wicked movie could be okay, because I feel like at least Wicked is a different take on the material, right? But just a straightforward remake of this, like, what, what are you going to add to it? What are you going to do that sets it apart from one of the greatest films ever made and the most well-known films ever made? I don't know what you can possibly add to it. I am a little bummed that they're not going with Adina Menzel and Kristen Chenoweth in the Wicked movie. And I get it, you know, we're doing it for a new generation and we're aging it down. But those two are pretty iconic there. They are. I mean, they're, they're doing all right. I'm sure they have like cameos or something, right, in the film. I mean, they have to. I don't know. We'll find out okay. someday, whenever that movie comes out. I don't even know when it is. Next year sometime or whatever. That's a deal. <laughs> so uh, do you want to mention anything else on the legacy of uh, this film, Jason? No, this is like Jaws. You know, we did what we could or Star Wars. But, you know, we're just uh, offering uh, another opinion into the the uh, great list of many opinions here for Oz the Great and Powerful, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Yes, not Oz the Great. <laughs> I know, Josh. <laughs> I know. So that's The Wizard of Oz. That's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Come on down the yellow brick road to our online and social media presence. It doesn't exist this season because it's 1939. Yeah, maybe send us a telegram. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Carrier pigeons or smoke signals. Do what you got to do. Uh, we're at awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on uh, And I'm Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on all the socials. Eat this comedy. That's coming back. Find me on Letterboxd. Go for Jason. Hey, I got a lot of uh, new followers on Dave's last live show. So got to do more of those just to pick up that letterbox seat. Yeah, mm-hmm. letterbox is where it's at. I agree. You can find some old stuff from me at JoshBellHatesEverything.com. I am at JoshBellHatesEverything on Facebook and at SignalBleed on Letterboxd, as well as on X Twitter and Blue Sky. And if you are on Letterboxd and you uh, watch one of the movies we talk about, tag your review, Awesome Movie Year. We'd love to see it, like it, comment on it, all that stuff. You know, we can get some thoughts from our listeners on the movies that we talk about and listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And since we're kicking off a new year with this episode, I will also plug my new venture with music. 24 for 2024, I'm releasing a new single every first and third Friday of the year. Uh, 24 songs. It's a ridiculously ambitious thing, but a lot of great music on the way. Awesome. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Dave, you're you're a hard worker. You're the hardest working man. podcasting slash electronic music. No, I'm so stupid. Now I know I steal all that Patreon money from us. <laughs> yes. That's Jason, right. what do we have in our next episode? Josh, we're not doing a first feature this year, but we are doing a major figure and uh, we're doing a major figure behind uh, the camera. And of course, in front of the camera with this one, it's Stagecoach, directed by John Ford with John Wayne, the most American of movie stars. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, that's an interesting (laughs) distinction that I'm sure we'll talk about. So tune in next time for Stagecoach and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.
there are tons and tons of sequels or spinoffs or remakes. Is that a dog? That's is my dog. Him? Yeah, totally. It's oh. barking. My dog never barks. This is exciting. Is she okay? Nah, there's no witch capturing her. Let's just keep going. All right. So there are tons and tons of sequels and spinoffs and remakes. Uh, and Josh, as you film. can hear in the background, my dog is Juno is telling you how much she enjoyed the film right now. <laughs> she relates to um, getting the whole family. You know, fun, she, huh? she likes walks where they, they, you know, and she likes nature. So there's a lot for her to relate to in this movie. And she likes cuddles. Hmm. Would she enjoy being transported to a fantasy world? I don't know if she would recognize the difference, to be honest with you. But she, as long as I was there with her, I think she would be okay with it. Right. That's nice. Just like Toto and Dorothy. Right. The sweet little relationship I mean, you got going on there. When we planned this season, did we really think I'd get the whole family involved, Josh? And, and I've done it. Here you are ranking your family members. I didn't think you'd have both your parents so low. But that's, you know, you're, I'm not going to talk to you about your rankings. Yeah. 